0: This is Many Lamps in the Room, a podcast by and for New City Church in Vienna, Virginia. This week we're dropping the second of a three-part talk on friendship that Pastor Paul gave at the Men's Retreat. Before we get to that, however, we always like to start our podcast with a brief discussion about the catechism question from this Sunday's liturgy. This week's catechism question comes from the New City Catechism We're back to the New City Catechism, question 29. How can we be saved? Answer, only by faith in Jesus Christ and in his substitutionary atoning death on the cross. So even though we are guilty of having disobeyed God and are still inclined to do to all evil, nevertheless, God, without any merit of our own, but only by pure grace, imputes to us the perfect righteousness of Christ when we repent and believe in him. So, this answer um, has two theological terms that might seem a little technical. Substitutionary atonement is one, and imputation is the other. And so, I thought in discussing um, this catechism question, we might start by just defining those terms. And they're very related. Uh, Substitutionary atonement is really tied closely with the idea of imputation, uh, especially um, what's called double imputation. Uh, I'll explain. So atonement, you can think of as at-one-ment. meant. is reconciliation. Specifically in theological terms, it is God reconciling his people to him um, so that They are no longer separated by sin. So um, the way that is done in the Old Testament is through a ritual process of substitutionary atonement, sacrifices. And and specifically, if you look at uh, the chapter Leviticus 16, details procedures for a day called the Day of Atonement, where a scapegoat, a goat, is driven out of the community, and, pl- and the sins of the community are placed upon that goat, and the goat is exiled. It, it, that's literally where the term scapegoat comes from. And so uh, it's this idea that the sins of the community, the sins of a people, are placed upon a substitute animal of course, this is all symbolic. It's not an actual substitutionary atonement because an animal is not going to be a good enough substitute for human sins and the fallenness, um, the depth and depravit- of our depravity. Only Christ will be able to actually do that. And so that symbolic act is actually just looking ahead, looking forward to, in faith to what will, will be accomplished on the cross. So, this, so there's this sort of act of substituting one person, Jesus Christ, for our sins. And this is where the idea of imputation comes along. Imputation literally means to accredit one attribute to another. So just if we take this idea of the scapegoat, you are imputing upon these, the goat the sins of the community. You're placing the the sins of the community upon the goat. You're saying that the goat now has the sins of the community. And that's what's done to Christ. There's... Um, actually what we call a double imputation. Because what happens on the cross is that the sins of all who believe on Christ, the sins of humanity, are placed upon Christ. But with his death and his resurrection, Christ's righteousness is then imputed upon those who believe on him. And so that's what uh, Martin Luther called the glorious exchange. There's a double imputation. Our sins are imputed upon Christ, and Christ's righteousness is imputed upon us. What, what, what we used to have as a mark of shame is now put upon Christ, and what he has had as a mark of glory is now given to us. There is... A wonderful old hymn called "Rock of Ages" that talks about uh, the double cure, and it talks of, and it refers specifically to how, in the Gospel of John, Christ bleeds out both blood and water, and this is um, and it calls that a double cure that that actually Christ's blood covers over our sins, but cr- the water that flows from Christ is a baptism that we now go into that gives us new life in Christ uh, because he has imputed his righteousness onto us. So this work of salvation is really a wondrous thing in, in that it's not just a one-time forgiveness um, that's done for our sins, but that actually our whole identity is completely reconfigured because of our acceptance of Christ's salvation. We're no longer the same persons. We no longer can identify as sinners, even though we still struggle with sin, We no longer are defined by our sin, but instead we are defined as children of God, as the family of Christ, the body of Christ.
1: The gospel approach is not driven by technique, but it's actually driven by love, love, genuine love for the other person, which has as its highest goal not even friendship. You see, this is where it's so distinct. Not, not, I want friendship. But in the end, I want you to know Jesus. And I want you to become like Jesus. Aristotle, he has this uh, categorization of friendship. Now, I think there's a gospel corrective, but that's actually very helpful, right? Right? He says there are three types of friendship. But again, just to be clear with nomenclature, I think when we talk about friendship, what we all want is an inner circle, right? By the way, just be a man about this. If you have to ask if I'm in this person's inner circle, that means you're not, which is fine, okay? Was that too harsh? Oh, come on, we're men, okay? <laughs> But Aristotle, he has these three categorizations of friendship that are very helpful, helpful. He says that, number one, there's this thing called friendship of pleasure. What he means by that is that we're friends because we have certain common pleasures. Like, for instance, guys, many guys like sports, and they like talking about sports, right? And so, you're you're friends, but the kind of friend that you are is what we call friendship of pleasure, right? Aristotle is actually really clear about this. He says, when he says friendship of pleasure... He says that this one tends to not last very long, meaning like when one person either ceases to have this pleasure, it might be because of time. like let's say you loved sports, but then you got married and you had children so or because of distance. does that make sense, right? And so some of you have a love for cooking, some of you have a love for like you know cigars, you get a bourbon, right? And so he would say that's a friendship of pleasure, right And then the second thing is he says. There's a friendship of utility, utility, right? The reason why you're friends is you're like doing a project together or you have a shared cause. And let me illustrate why I think these distinctions are actually very helpful. They actually protect you from being unduly offended. The last one is this. He calls this one good friendship, where this is a friendship that is committed to helping the other achieve the highest good right, in terms of character and being. Now, the problem with this last one, according to Aristotle, is that he actually doesn't define what highest good is. It's very vague. And I think that's where the Gospels is. from. But let me share with you why I think that this is very helpful, these categorizations, right? And again, yeah, like, this is not, like, elitism. It's not discrimination. For instance, I would describe my relationship with my wife as marriage, And it's, yeah, it is discriminating, but not in a negative sense. It is like what it is, right? When you are able to actually be clear-sighted and nuanced that here is a friendship of pleasure. We are quote-unquote friends because we love watching, what is that called, UFC, right, together on Saturday nights. So we're friends. We love reading Shakespeare together, so we're friends of pleasure. Or we're friends of utility, Right? My seminary colleagues, you know, I teach at a seminary, they are friends of utility in the sense we, you know, we have a common project. We are leading the seminary together. But you know what that also means? <clears throat> you see, because we are friends of utility, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, let's say their children are getting married. I actually would not be offended if they didn't invite me to the wedding. In fact, maybe there's a part of me that would see this more as a duty than a delight. Does that make sense? Whereas, let's say, a friend in my inner circle, let's say his son gets married, and I don't get an invitation, there might be some like, huh, that's, that's that's strange. You get it? And so I actually think some nuance here is helpful. And let me give you another way this works out. So I often hear this, like especially by recent college graduates. They're like, oh, I feel like... Uh, like, I don't have any friends anymore, because in college I had so many friends, right? See, what Aristotle would say is that, well, it depends on what you mean, because I don't want to overstate this, but a lot of our college friendships are friendships of pleasure, or friendships of utility. And I know this is a gross overgeneralization, but there are not many college students who are mature enough where I am your friend because I'm committed to your highest good right? My sister, right? She has this one friend that she still keeps in touch with from college. And I remember this one friend even just as her brother, because what was so distinct about this friend was this friend was my sister's friend because she was committed to my sister in terms of like her highest good, meaning her becoming a better person, right? And so even now they're still friends because it wasn't a friendship of pleasure, It wasn't a friendship of utility, but it was a good friendship, right? And so here, I think, brothers, it's actually very helpful to just have these distinctions in mind. Because, quote-unquote, when you lose a friendship, depending on the kind of friendship it was, you actually don't mourn the loss as much. Does that make sense? But if you don't have any nuance, and you're just, like, fusing them all together, then you can be sorry for the wrong reason. Does that make sense? Like... The loss of a good friendship is a true loss. But the loss of a friendship of pleasure, it's a loss... You know, it was, it was never really built on, like, each other's mutual good. It was just built on a mutual pleasure that you had. One of the
0: things that I, I've come across in reading is this notion of having a personal board of directors yeah. where you pick out people that you think could be wise people maybe mentors maybe people that you can feel you can share your life with and they could they could provide useful feedback for i would imagine that's distinct from this idea of a good friendship right is do you how do you sort of nuance that between this idea of having people around you who you deliberately sort of reach out to and select to be words of wisdom in your life versus Maybe what you've been calling good friends or utility friends. So, so after, could
1: I nuance that a uh, little yeah, bit? Yeah. Um, John. Instead of like the board of directors, like a lot of guys would have accountability partners, mm-hmm. which yeah. would speak wisdom. So, what's the difference between accountability group versus inner circle? Yeah. Or even board of directors. So, yeah. This is what Aristotle would say. He would say that these categorizations are helpful for organizational purposes, but more often than not, they blend. So, we shouldn't be like, but right. too restrictive, necessarily. So I think regarding the board of directors, right? I've heard that a lot. When I was in business school, they always talked about you need to have a personal board of directors. Aristotle would say that that's not a friendship, but because, you see, one of the things that characterizes good friendship is reciprocity, meaning it's mutually beneficial. Now, someone can make the argument that mentors benefit from mentees because yada, yada, yada but but I think in terms of board of directors, Clearly, it is, in one sense, utilitarian. Like, I'm pursuing this mentorship relationship because I can primarily benefit from you. And I think Aristotle, knowing like the little I know about him, would say that actually relationship is necessary in life, but he just wouldn't call it a friendship, right? So accountability, that's that's an interesting question because that has more a kind of reciprocity that, that Aristotle would say. I think the thing about but even then, Some, not in all cases, but a lot of times accountability could actually fall under more the friendship of utility. This is why. Because there is still a project in view. Does that make sense? So let's say I need accountability with my finances, Mm. right? So it was actually, so this is why I said Aristotle would say there's some blending. But even then, I would say accountability is not the kind of friendship that, Aristotle and ultimately Jesus talks about, because that is still the impetus behind it was sort of an initiative. So let's grow in terms of financial accountability. Now, it is possible a friendship could be born from that, right? I think what Aristotle means is like, what is the original impetus or what is the goal? And even accountability, I think that, I think a lot of us have been in accountability groups, but I'm not sure how many of us would say, hey, he's my accountability partner, And he's my friend, too. I think whereas we would say something like, he's my friend, and he also keeps me accountable, too. So I think there's some distinction there. It's a really good question. Jason? On that note, one thing that I think is an observation sometimes is that you have people in your life that you think are part of your inner circle for various reasons. Maybe they're accountable, maybe they're mentors, or maybe they're really good friends. You consider them as part of your inner circle. But unfortunately, they don't see it that way. (laughs) Or vice versa, you happen to find yourself in somebody's inner circle, but you're not really sure how you got there. Who knows? (laughs) Any thoughts on this kind of observation? That uh, hopefully not often, but sometimes. Boy, it happens. (laughs) I I love what Jason shared. I use this language all the time, right? And so unabashedly, like one of the persons at our church I've known the longest is Paul Jin. Most of you know Paul Jin. I consider Paul one of my closest friends, but I always say, I consider Paul one of my closest friends. If you were to ask Paul, do you consider Paul Jen a friend? I think he might be like, (laughs) like, like, I I don't know. I I don't know. Right. I actually don't. uh, And by the way, I'm okay with that too. Is it possible for there to be imbalance, this is why I would say I would actually argue yes. Later on, when we look at the friendships that Jesus had, it wasn't like reciprocity in terms of equality. Does that make sense? Right? So I think that that situation can come up, right? And I think that's okay, too. Having said that, I will say that if there's too much of an imbalance, right, where I consider you in my inner circle, but you don't consider me at all in your inner circle, in fact, you're not even in my, like, circle, you're, like, friendly, right? Mm -hmm. Generally, then, that's probably something more of a, like, board of directors arrangement. Does that make sense? Like, where, like, it's only one directional. But that, I I think, (coughs) happens. That's okay, too. By the way, a lot of hurt does often come from that, like, false expectations, where, like, let's say... You were this happened to me actually. It's, I don't know if you guys have experienced this. I've been asked to be best man on uh, more than a few occasions. But I actually did not consider like these men to necessarily be my inner circle. And so they were very offended that they were not asked to be groomsmen. And it did create like lots of hurt. So I think that can happen. We've been talking
0: about is kind of how defined those boundaries are in in terms of those relationships do you feel like it's it's useful to have a to find the relationship kind of talk See, I think actually what
1: can be helpful is just having a more sophisticated understanding of friendship so I think what can happen is like for instance even these categories friendship of pleasure friendship of utility and friend, like good friendship like let's say you don't have those distinctions so for you you're equating friendship of pleasure with good friendship. Whereas another person might say, no, we are definitely good friends in terms of friendship of pleasure, but not in terms of like like good friendship. And so that kind of misunderstanding can arise just because there's also a difference in not just understanding the friendship, but understanding what friendship is. It's really hard to have that kind of discussion where you you say, all right, "Let's be clear, just we're friendships of pleasure," you know. But I think that for all of us, just growing in terms of like that kind of friendship sophistication, actually can be very helpful. By the way, C. S. Lewis said this, so it's probably right. He actually said the best friendships you have are actually incidental, and so it actually inspired me writing this little thing on friendship. And it's, it's called friendship, a kind of like an incidental delight. Meaning, And what, what C.S. Lewis is getting at is, again, if you make it your goal, like I'm going to have friends and I'm going to have an inner circle, you're never going to have it. Most friendships happen because of something else, right? The way C.S. Lewis explained it is he said, friends, you become friends when you are looking at and moving towards the same thing. Right? And so let's say you are like looking at what he would say like the glory of God and your shared goal is really to make the gospel known. He says to people who are basically distant, as they approach closer to this common conviction, you see how as they draw closer to something that's outside of them, they inevitably get closer along the way. And so that's what he means when he says it's incidental now, you, you can nuance it more by saying there are certain things that facilitate friendship, but that's actually really helpful to keep in mind. Again, like if you want, and I'm just echoing C.S. Lewis here, if you want friendship, you have to want something more than friendship, right? And so that, I, I, I'll just leave it like that for now.
0: Here are some children's ministry announcements. There's a reminder that the preschool and K through fifth Sunday school is available during the 9 a.m. service. The preschool class will be in Suite 115, and the K, and the K through fifth grade class will be in the third floor conference room. And on May 26th is another respite night. Um, due to the RTS graduation banquet on the 19th, the May respite night will be moved to the next week, and registration will be open in April. And then last but not least, from July 24th to July 28th, we will be having our summer VBS. We need volunteers, so please contact Mark if you are interested.
1: So one thing I want to talk about then before we move on. So there are those categories of friendship, right? But this one writer, he says something really interesting about friendship. He basically says this. He says... Have you noticed that evil people never have friends? It's a very interesting insight. And then he, st- he states it actually more positively. He says, You see, because friendship inevitably makes its participants better people. Because friendship, by definition, depends on virtues. So let me say, like, This is a really interesting insight. He says, If you look at history, evil people literally cannot have friends. Now, They can have friendships of pleasure. Like, let's say you both love, like, illegal dog fights. Then you can sort of, like, you know, like he said, you can have that kind of friendship, but you can't actually have good friendships. Because, you see, like, friendship depends on virtues, like selflessness, honesty, generosity, right? That's why friendships are such a good assessment of your character. It's a very insightful, difficult pill to swallow, but again, he's saying, you see, the reason why bad people can't have friendships is because friendship, by definition, facilitates virtue. It depends on virtue. And then he goes on to say, and this is why when you have friends, one of the ways that you know you have friends is because you become a better person because of the friendship, Both because this is what friendship deserves. Does that make sense? And so... It was really interesting when he was talking about. He's saying probably the main benefit of true friendship is that it forces you to become a better person. Like you, you cannot be friends with someone that you consider dishonest. You cannot be friends with someone that you consider stingy. You get it, right? And so this is why friendship inevitably facilitates actually growth in character. And another sociologist he puts it in this way. That's really interesting. So the loss of good friendship. Is going to contribute to the loss of a good society. Elder Tom had forwarded me this article that is really worth like reading. I think it's from Gospel Coalition, but it talks about how many boys, in particular, are losing like friendships because of, in large part, video games. Actually, and because you see, that would be a friendship of pleasure. Does that make sense? Like we all like Fortnite or something like that. But to have a friendship that's built on one another's mutual good and edification. That's becoming, you might say, increasingly rare. And one of the things to think about is if it is the case that friendship makes us better people, and that obviously spills into society. And therefore, the loss of good friendship is going to have a cataclysmic impact right, on our society as well. And by the way, this is a tough pill to swallow. Tough pill to swallow. But I hear this a lot, actually, as a pastor. You know, I don't say anything because there's a lot of wisdom to just I just like, listening, but I have noticed this. One of the few people who will express to me, I don't have friends, right? It is interesting that when I, I'll just ask basic questions like, well, are you seeking to be hospitable? Overall, like, are you generous? Are you kind? Generally, uh, the answer is no. And that's what this author is saying. He's saying, you see, because friendship is God's gift and because it's such a good thing, you actually cannot have it without being like a good person. That's actually, that's something worth thinking through. And I think C.S. Lewis was saying something very similar. He says, that's why those people who always want friends, they never have friends because they just want, want, want. But those people who aspire to be a good friend end up Having so many friends, right? And why is that? It's so very similar to this, what this other author is saying. It's because they have built the virtues that friendship requires. So I hope that, I hope that that's very helpful. You something I talk about a lot with, like, this is a liability of being like a PK. Like, every talk is always a sermon, right? But my kids are always like, you know, like, friendship is really important. And um, especially when my first son transitioned from elementary school to middle school, right? It was actually a very good occasion for us to talk about what friendship is. And, you know, one of the things i continue to just instill in them is don't worry about, like, having many friends. I said, don't let that be your preoccupation. Instead, I said, even from a young age, learn how to be a good friend. You know what one son said is really interesting. <clears throat> he goes, oh, that's a lot of work. Yeah. Isn't that interesting? Whereas having friends isn't any work because you're just consuming, right? And that's why generally you don't have friends after a while because you know if you suck the life out of other people, you, know, you get bumped into the friendly circle, okay? But the inner circle always assumes some degree of reciprocity. And May I common, add that no.
0: like with anything, we have, an enormous capacity to legalize everything, so it's possible that you know it's it's possible that you can be like, oh, I'm going to be the best friend ever, friend worthy person ever, and in work yeah. on being generous yeah, 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 and yeah, work yeah. on being yeah. nice and blah blah yeah. blah, blah, yeah. blah. Yeah. and be disappointed that that doesn't just attract people to you. And I you know I think again it's it's we should we should be careful not to to make it legalistic, yeah. and instead. Really work towards seeing what's interesting about other people. You know, seeing the good in other people, seeing how God is working, and and you know, I think when you make it less mechanistic, yeah. make it less about you know what are the specific attributes that I need to have, and, and make it more about other people yeah. and being interested and serving and that and exhibiting love. That's that's that can be. Probably where you want to start.
1: Yeah, so this is a good segue into like what Aristotle taught about friendship, but then what Jesus teaches about friendship actually. Because see what Elder Thomas is talking about, there's this author, his name is Jacques Ellul, and he talks about how we've become the society of technique. It's actually a very interesting book that he wrote. I think it's called Techno Poly or something. And he's saying this is a trademark of Western culture. Everything now is a technique. This is how you parent technique. This is how you make friends technique, right? And he says, you see, what's happened is what was supposed to be limited to the mechanistic world. He actually uses that phrase. Like, for instance, how to make an engine. That is a technique, right? But that has now spilled over into other aspects of life. And so this can actually become dangerous. Like, Aristotle's approach can actually become, not, not necessarily his approach, but the implicit approach can be dangerous because then even friendship can become a technique, right? Right? Whereas this is where the gospel is so unique, and Elder the already hit on it. See, Aristotle actually never defined clearly what the highest good is. But you see, for believers, the highest good is to know Jesus and to become like him. The theological term is called sanctification, right? And so, again, I'm, I'm drawing from a lot of different authors, right? But this is the difference, then, from... Jesus' and gospel approach versus a technique approach. You see, even with the technique approach, it's actually very selfish because, okay, all right, I want friends, so I got to be generous, I got to be kind, I can't be, you know, I can't be all, like, tantrum me right? Send a bunch of yeah, thank you yeah, notes. Yeah. <laughs> so thank you, you know, you, you, you're, you're, you by the way, and one of the ways you know you're a, actually a technique-driven person is you're very checklist in the sense of, like, this is what happened. You do everything you're supposed to do, and you're like, hey, why don't I still have friends, right? And you see, because C.S. let's would say, would say you've, you, that's all you still want. You just want friends. The only difference is you've adopted a technique, right? Whereas the gospel approach is not driven by technique, but it's actually driven by love, love. Genuine love for the other person, which has as its highest goal, not even friendship. You see, this is where it's so distinct. Not, not I want friendship in the end, I want you to know Jesus. And I want you to become like Jesus. You see, that's the goal. So it's no longer technique, but it's love. The goal is not friendship itself, but it's what? That this person would know and love Jesus. And so the way one author parses this out, he says, if you think about the following, right? And he brings it back to Jesus. He said, so Jesus, and then he's this author sort of integrates Jesus and Aristotle in helpful ways, right? He says, this is why when Jesus was friendly with the crowds, he wanted the people to know him and to become like him. But because they were on this, you might say, this circle, where they were he was just friendly, one of the trademarks was that he had no expectations from the crowds. Notice in the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't say, hey, will, will you all pray for me, right? And so one of the things that happens is this, this is where it's really helpful when you're like friendly you just love the crowds in hope that they would know Jesus, right? But you actually have no expectation from this particular group. What does this mean? It means you can invite someone to your, like, someone that you're friendly towards right, to your home. You can invite them to your home, and you can provide for them a meal without any expectation of reciprocation. Does that make sense, right? Because your goal here was not, I invite you, Within the next 12 months, I'm expecting you to invite me, right? Because the goal is what? I'm inviting you so that you might taste and know that the Lord is good, right? But you see here, it's not really a technique. It's just I'm loving you. But what's different here is that there's no expectation, right? Now, in the next circle, this author pits very helpfully is this. This is where you actually develop friendship, right? When it came to Jesus' disciples and the woman that followed him, right? You are friends, And you're friends in the sense that not only are you seeking to make Jesus known, right, to the other person, but you're doing it collectively, right? And so friendships do, like, develop in this way, right, where we become friends because we are actually serving together, right? And you see that with Jesus and his disciples. He says, now I call you friends. It's it's because, again, not only was he trying to show Jesus to them, but they were involved in a partnership, and this is again like, you know, we've all experienced this. Like, I would say at the very least, I consider the deacons and elders' Print, right, where I'm not only trying to show them Jesus, but together, right, we are trying to make Jesus known. So there's that part. But then, if you take it one next, one step next, right, Jesus did have an inner circle. Remember. And by the way, I always feel bad. Did you ever think about this from the perspective of the other disciples? Whenever you say, like, John, was it John, James, and Peter? Come with me. If I were one of the other disciples, I'd be like, I'm not in the inner circle. (laughs) But in that friendship, right, what's really distinct about those friendships is that the experience of that friendship actually truly shows you the character of God it makes you want to become like, like Jesus, right? And so if you were to ask me, like, how do I define my inner circle, right? It's usually this. <clears throat> I have friends, but in my inner circle, when I'm being facetious, I'm like, oh, this is a safe place. So I share more freely. But more than that, I've noticed that the people in my inner circle, they have like embodied for me who Christ is. And they literally inspire me to want to become more like Jesus, right? Like, it's a, like, and by the way, it just happens, I keep saying. It's not something like, I've never, no one is in my inner circle where they're like, oh, I want to be like, in positive inner circle. It's just who they are as people, right, has made them so attractive, maybe even mutually attractive, that they have that kind of impact.
0: When do you feel like you were the fittest in your life, Mark? Probably 8 years ago. Oh yeah. It was Is this um, before you were married.
2: Before I was married, before I moved up to Northern Virginia. I was working at I was working at this nonprofit and I was probably the lightest I have ever been, mm. but also just I just felt great. Mm. So I currently weigh probably somewhere in the 170s, I hope. but I won't
0: at, tell you how much I weigh.
2: <laughs> but at that time, I think I weighed 140 wow. or 130-something. Yeah, yeah. And maybe that was too light. But as far as physically speaking, I didn't feel like I had no energy. I actually had a ton of energy. I felt good. I didn't have pain in my knees or my back. I just, I just felt good. Yeah. And part of it was I was eating pretty healthy and then I was exercising mm-hmm. but if you hear why you, you understand so I was working at this place I wasn't really making much so I had to really I'm, I'm meal prepped. I basically ate the same thing every day but then at my workplace they basically had a, a garden And they were trying to promote basically like, oh, like everyone in the community, like you can do a garden in your own homes and you can raise your own food. And so they would, you know, they had apples, they had blackberries, they had sugar snap peas, they had a whole bunch of vegetables and fruit. And so I just ate that every day because I was like, I was hungry. These were my snacks because I didn't have money. So I just ate that. That's awesome. Right. So healthy snacks. But then also they were a green organization, meaning like they didn't use any harsh chemicals. They tried to reduce energy consumption. And one of the ways was to not crank the heat or the AC. But during the winter, yeah. they would turn on the AC heater, but it was so low. Yeah, <laughs> But the building, it was... It used to be this old grocery store that they had renovated.
0: So you shivered yourself to fitness. Yeah, and then they
2: and then they added on this this wing that I worked out of, but it was just concrete. Yeah, and so it was an ice box. Your,
0: your metabolism must have been through the roof.
2: Exactly. When I got into work, it was in the 40s in my office, and then I had a little space heater that I kept yeah. underneath my. My work you have desk to keep that hidden away from everybody yes, else. <laughs> I did because we weren't supposed to waste energy, but that little heater made that office maybe in the 50s or 60s. but if anyone knows that's incredibly cold still, yeah, it and is. so I was in my office with like four layers of clothes, oh. I had tights on top of my you know pants I mean below my pants, and then you know I had wow shirts sweaters everything jacket and i was still cold and so essentially like you're saying yeah i was shivering so much i think it's one of those things where like survivalists will say like if you go into these cold regions you have to eat more calories to keep up because you have to keep your body temperature up and i think that was the case and so for me i was super cold yeah but on top of that what ended up happening was i exercised at work because i was so cold yeah yeah i had to exercise to up. warm myself up. So I would do push-ups in the office. I would do squats. I would do all sorts of exercises yeah. just to stay warm. And then the byproduct was I got really healthy, wow. but that was probably the fittest I ever was. But then, you know, even outside of that, when I would get off work I would, you know, I used to go to the gym and play basketball a lot and I, I would work out at the gym too. So it was, I was working out at work, but then I also worked out like after work, so it was, you know, two-a-days. So I, I, was, I was pretty fit then. Yeah.
0: We pray our discussion was edifying to you, and we'd love to hear any feedback. Mark's email is mark at newcityva.org. Stephen Price provided the music, and you can find more of it at almadogma.bandcamp.com. That's almadogm bandcamp. We're recording on equipment generously donated by Sonny Kim, and you can find out more about our church at newcityva.org. Thanks for listening, and until next time, watch those windows.